Tonight I want to continue with the discussion on the progress of liberating insight knowledge. We know that the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught that codified the realization of what the Buddha understood includes the truth of dukkha. The second noble truth is that the cause of this dukkha or suffering, pain, insecurity, vulnerability is craving or holding on. And that the third noble truth is that there is an end to this dukkha. And the fourth noble truth is the path of practice leading to the end of dukkha. And the Noble Eightfold Path is essentially three trainings. There is the first training or the most basic training which is sila. And we see this in the progression of insight knowledge as the purification of conduct which is the uh, purifying of the speech and behavior of the transgressive defilements. The defilements that cause us to speak and act out in such a way as that it transgresses others, causing them harm. And when we're able to practice sila, purify our speech and behavior of these transgressive defilements, then we have done what we can to enjoy the happiness of living in harmony with one another. Nevertheless, even if we are successful in living in harmony or not speaking and acting carelessly in a way that transgresses against others, our minds can still be pretty tormented. And so a stronger, I should say a more powerful training or practice and a more subtle practice is needed in order to purify the mind. And we see this in the purification of mind, the second, we'd say, preliminary foundation for developing insight knowledge. And this essentially involves training in mindfulness in order to see the obsessive defilements in the mind and to, to be aware of them rather than to be entangled in them. And when we're able to do that momentarily or temporarily for at least short periods of times, we get to enjoy the happiness of seclusion, meaning the mind is secluded from the defilements. And when the defilements are not rampant in the mind, we stop suffering. I'll remind you that the Buddha said, it is because of visiting forces in the mind, known as defilements, that we suffer. And so when those forces can temporarily be 
seen through continuity of awareness either on a chosen object or random objects then for that period of time there are no defilements. This kind of happiness, this seclusion of mind, the happiness of tranquility, if you will, is a more subtle happiness than living in harmony with one another. It's also more enduring. The third training of the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path is the purification of understanding. And for this we need to practice Vipassana. Developing these insight knowledges that I have been speaking about in order to remove the wrong understanding that allows, we'd say, dormant or latent defilements in the mind to sprout when conditions support them. There will always be conditions in the world that we meet, in our bodies, in our minds, in our relationships. There will always be conditions that could give rise to frustration, disappointment, greed, and the whole spectrum of defilements. And so the Buddha understood it is really working within the mind and the gross misunderstandings that reside there that need to be looked at and corrected through insight knowledge. And when the knowledge of how things really are is appears in the mind, then we won't be mistaken, we won't be confused, and we won't give those latent seeds of defilements any airtime. They just don't take up any time in the mind because we understand them. And in this way we are not only keeping them at bay, we've actually uprooted their regenerative potential. And this is the power of accessing the unconditioned, temporarily through developing insight and permanently through accessing the unconditioned. So this is what I want to speak about tonight, this third training of the Noble Eightfold Path, development of wisdom, or higher wisdom actually, because I've spoken about the first couple already, which is discerning the nature of materiality, mentality, and recognizing that in each moment there's something being known. And the what is being known is impersonal, and the knowing too is quite impersonal, happens due to causes and conditions, most of which are outside of our immediate intentional control. When we have a 
firm understanding of that, we then move on to discerning the nature of the relationship between mind and body, between past, present, and future, and between one moment and the next. And with this, we begin to really see on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, and we begin to inferentially understand from a timeless perspective, the workings of karma. We really begin to understand how things arise due to intentions and supportive causes and inevitably have to produce their certain effects. With that, when we drop into this understanding that Nothing is accidental. Everything is happening due to the lawful causes and conditions of the nature of things. Then we can begin to see the underlying structure of all phenomena, physical and mental, that they're impermanent. They are unstable and therefore do not provide a basis for satisfaction. And they're impersonal or they have a life of their own, independent of us. We don't control them, they aren't ours to own, but just due to causes and conditions. Mm -hmm. When the causes and conditions are there, things arise. We can't prevent it, we can't make it happen. When we understand this, when we understand these characteristics of all phenomena, then we can really actually relax because we're just seeing the unfolding of nature. The natural order of mental, physical, scientific laws, if you will. And we're just watching. And it is then that the next Vipassana knowledge mm -hmm. of the arising and passing away of phenomena emerges. And what we see now is we really stop resisting, we really stop uh, reacting to what we see in our body, in our minds, and we're just able to, in a very quite equanimous way, just watch the endless arising and passing away of phenomena. And when we're able to have that non-reactive clarity, things really speed up. And the pace of recognizing known physical and mental things just accelerates tremendously. And it's impossible, actually, to keep up with it. It's impossible to form the words to the, of the concept of what's happening. And so, it just seems like things are racing. But amazingly, the mind, or the mindfulness, can keep up and clearly recognize everything. It is as if in a single glance at one thing, the mind sees and recognizes many things. We're no longer delayed in recognizing what's happening, but we're right on it as soon as it happens and in a single second. 
we can seemingly know many things, clearly. And there's enough equanimity in the mind at this time to not get caught in any reactivity. Or if there is any reactivity, if there's any sluggishness in recognizing and, and uh, understanding what's arisen, it doesn't last long. The defilement that might arise in reaction to any, anything that has arisen is also seen just as quickly and understood and it passes away also. So we really don't fall into uh, any sustained uh, periods of the defilements. Now when the mind whose nature is to know, this is what the mind does, the mind knows. It knows by feeling and thinking, it knows by directly experiencing, the mind knows, that's its nature. When the mind is unhindered in doing what it does, knowing, it takes great delight. It just gets really happy. And so this arising and passing away, the knowledge of the arising and passing away phenomena is a time of a lot of happiness in practice. It's just delightful. It's fun. It's joyful. It's just, it's everything you've hoped for in practice. And whether we know it or not, we practice with a uh, considerable hope, uh, expectations, assumptions, um, anticipation for, well, good meditative experience. And they come. There's no doubt about it. If you, if you persist, you, good meditation experiences will come. Maybe the most distinctive element, or the couple most distinctive elements of this knowledge is that things are extremely rapid and they are known extremely clearly without reactivity. And it's not because we have to make any special effort. It's as if we don't have to make any particular effort. We say this is a period of time when it's quite effortless energy. But what happens here is all of the you know, dramatic, hoped for, meditative experiences arise. And these are called pseudo-nibbana. <laughs> Because we don't know what we're looking for or practicing for, but when we get some of these dramatic mental effects, we, we think, we think, this is it. I've arrived. So I want to spend a little time just identifying these pseudo-nibbanas because while they are delightful and they are inevitable, they do upon their very arising and our attachment to them become an obstacle to further practice. So they're called obstacles to insight. In and of themselves, they're not an obstacle, but it's the attachment and delight in them, attachment to delight in them, and a sense of gratification that we take from them that causes them to hinder 
or impede further progress. One of the first um, obstacles to arise is what's called lights or obasa. And it is as if, and what happens is the perceptual field of the mind brightens up really dramatically. And even with your eyes closed, you see the brightness of the mind. And it is as if you were sitting in a dark room and somebody comes in and turns on the lights or more often turns on the strobe lights. And it can be colorful and it can be bright and it can be intense. And inevitably you think somebody's screwing around with the lights and you open your eyes and nobody's screwing around with the lights. In fact, it's still daylight. It's not dark at all. And it's the mind so pure in its perception of what's going on that it sees its own brightness, really. And it can be pretty dramatic. It can be pretty, um, well, unexplainable because most of us haven't had that kind of experience. And when you see things happen, you want to open your eyes and you get confused. You wonder, am I imagining things? Am I, am I going a little bit wacky? Uh, is, is what's happening? And all of this wondering and engagement with the experience is really stopping your practice. Because it's so dramatic and it's so unexplained and it's so unique really in our life up to that point, we start thinking about it. We forget that it's just another experience being known. And so we take delight in it. We feel gratified in some ways, like finally I'm getting some results from my practice. Or we, we think, this is really special. I'm pretty special for having this kind of experience. Or we cling to it, you know, we look for it from sitting to sitting or throughout the sitting. And it is these kinds of mistaken beliefs, thoughts about indulgence in these experiences that stops and actually hinders and retards our mindfulness and our concentration and our insight. So, skillful teacher at this point has to say, yeah, just keep noting it. And the yogi will insist, yeah, I'm just noting it. I'm just noting it. Of course they're not. They're indulging like crazy. You know, and so <laughs> yogis tend to get stuck here for a while, indulging. And lights is just the beginning of it. The second um, pseudo-nibbana that I want to speak about is, uh, let's see, in this case, it's rapture. Rapture, joy, you know, there's been times in our practice when we've all felt a lot of joy, just happiness to sit down and practice and, and joy at what we see, even sometimes when it's difficult, you know, there's that, that willingness to endure pain because it's so fascinating to really understand it. Well, when, when the mind is really clean of the defilements and joy arises, you ain't seen joy like this yet. It's, it is transporting and there are degrees of uh, joy from 
momentary, well, back in the old days we'd call them rush, rushes of one sort or another. And sometimes they develop to full-blown, ecstatic, orgasmic, full-body bliss for hours. And of course you're not indulging in it. <laughs> you're just noting it like any other painful object, you know, of course. When that kind of joy arises in the mind, we get hooked. We get, we get, we get caught there because it's so dramatic and it's so pleasurable in the body and the mind both are just filled with just the most exquisite pleasure that you can imagine. No, you can't imagine. It's, they say, the texts say, that it is more joyful than any sensual joy and pleasure you have ever felt. And frankly, some of that sensual joy and pleasure is pretty good, <laughs> but nothing like this. And so, quite naturally, we're going to think, this is, <laughs> this is really special. I must be special. And I heard this from my teacher, and now you're going to hear it from me. I didn't think it was true when I heard it, and you probably won't think it's true when you hear it. But the thought will arise in your mind, I don't think anybody else has ever experienced this. <laughs> and certainly not my teacher. <laughs> and I heard that and I said, <laughs> of course not. And yet, when it happens, you think, I am the only person in the world that could ever have experienced this. And you think. And this is what makes it one of the upakalesas. We think this is it. This is enlightenment. This is uh, Nibbana. This is whatever you are thinking uh, Nibbana and enlightenment is. That's what makes it such an obstacle because we think we have arrived. We think we've attained. We think we've gotten what we've been looking for. You haven't. That's not Nibbana. That's not enlightenment. It's bliss. It's joy. It's, it's great pleasure. And it comes as a, well, as we call it, a scenic turnout on the path. <laughs> you know? And you can stay at this turnout and you can watch the sunset for a long time before you realize you're stuck. Again, a skillful teacher has to say, you know, this is good, right? Are you noting it? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and, but the teacher has to be really skillful and say, you know, this is really good, isn't it? Yeah. And convince you that if you can let go of this, if you can just note this and not really indulge in it, there are better things ahead. Could you believe that? <laughs> well, that's what, that's what we try. And so joy is one of the defilements, or the attachment to that joy becomes a defilement in practice. The third of the ten is tranquility. And when I mean tranquility, I mean extraordinary tranquility, where the mind and body are so calm and so chilled out and so pleasant. 
there is no agitation and there's no anxiety and there's no restlessness and still there's an ongoing clarity and effortless energy that is in perfect balance with this exquisite tranquility and when this soothing cool tranquil mind arises it arises with a few other factors one of them is lightness of mind lightness of mind is what happens when you feel or is developed when you feel like you're floating sometimes you sit and you you might feel like you're just being lifted off your seat or you feel like you're floating or what's that you know when you get Levitation. levitating or, and sometimes limbs of your body levitate by themselves they just kind of move around because you're so light the mind is light and the body's light well this is pretty when you kind of come to and you realize that you're just kind of like hovering up there in the air with the birds and mm -hmm. floating around not bad huh Don <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, smoking. <laughs> yeah that's what it feels like yeah there's also other qualities like there's adaptability arising in the mind. The ability to adapt to any situation that arises. Your mind gets so pliable and so adaptable. It doesn't matter what arises in the body, in the mind, or in your environment. The mind immediately accommodates it without any struggle, without any effort, without any doubt, hesitation. Also, the mind becomes very pliant. It can wrap around and mold itself to any experience. The mind becomes and conditions the body to become very strong. You can sit for extended periods of times, an hour, two, three, no pain, no stiffness, no aches, no... because the mind is so strong and so healthy. And at this point, oftentimes, minor ailments even are cured, and sometimes major. As, as Lamint spoke about it last night, sometimes major diseases actually become symptom-free. So there's, oh, and there's one other. There's this uh, quality of mind called straightness of mind that gets aroused and developed at this time. Straightness of mind is where you just see things as they are. You cannot deceive yourself anymore. You don't, you don't put any spin on anything. It's called no-spin mind. It's just you see things nakedly as they are, and it inspires you to, to commit to being totally honest for the rest of your life, and just speak the truth always. And it's such a powerful clarity in the mind that it's very enlivening. So when tranquility arises with all of these, it is a distinctively unique uh, experience. Of course, we get attached to it, thinking again, I'm special, it's happening to me, this is going to last forever, I'm the only one that's ever experienced this, and all of these thoughts stop progress in our practice. Sukha, let's see, where are we now? Tranquility, oh, resoluteness. Uh, resoluteness or, I think that's... Uh, Edimoka, yeah, Edimoka. Here's where we have, un, well, let's say, overflowing faith and confidence in ourselves, in our practice, in our teachers, 
in the Dharma, in the Buddha, in the Sangha, in the retreat center, our fellow yogis, we have absolute confidence and faith in anything to do with the Dharma. Promising ourselves that we will continue to practice like this for the remainder of our life, because it's so obviously useful. And making extensive plans for doing extended retreats wherever we go, and imagining teaching the Dharma to everyone that we meet. <laughs> of course, when this happens, you have to recognize there's a little bit of overconfidence there. <laughs> of course you don't, because you're so inf infused with faith and the energy that, again, we indulge in it. We proliferate these dramatic stories about ourselves, and it becomes an obstacle to practice. The next um, corruption of insight is energy, and it is here where we really experience effortless energy, where it is just effortless to sit, to walk, uh, hardly needing any sleep, and at, at this point in practice is where people sometimes just don't sleep for days, weeks, even. And it's okay. There's no health effect. There's no damage to the health for this kind of just ongoing effortless energy, wakefulness. Even if you lie down, you can't go to sleep. And it's okay. Of course, you think it's something special. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, of course we do. And again, we proliferate extensive stories about ourselves, which is pride, uh, being unique, wrong view, uh, and hanging on to it like it's going to be there forever, craving. And again, it becomes an obstacle because of the attachment to it. Happiness, sukha, arises. It is like if joy is ecstasy, is orgasmic, then bliss or sukha is post-orgasmic. It's smooth, blissful, subtle, sensual delight. But it's in the mind and it conditions those kinds of feelings in the body. Extreme happiness and comfort in the mind and the body. Just extreme. Very intense. Where anything you think about makes you happy. Everything you feel in the body makes you happy. It's pleasant in a very subtle but dramatic way. Nobody would get attached to that, of course. So I'll move on to the next. Knowledge. Knowledge is the... Um, see, that's... When knowledge arises or insight arises with this extraordinary clarity, it is no effort to see piercingly the three characteristics and understand them in everything that you see. And there is just this clarity to the mind which, clarity to the mind and the accurate understanding of the way things are, 
that is very seductive. And again, because of it, we think this is the way it's going to be. You know, we have this kind of assumption denying impermanence that this, now that I've reached this, it's going to be like this for the rest of my life. If you think like that, you'll not progress. Uh, after jnana is mindfulness, when there's that clarity of um, mindfulness, where you don't have to make any special effort. It's as if objects present themselves to you without any looking, any searching, or any uh, effort to find them. And you don't have to direct your mind to an object. They show up and come to you. And again, this is a very delightful state of practice because we've been struggling for so long that when we get this kind of experience or when this kind of experience arises, we get seduced by it, frankly. Again, equanimity may be the most refined of the uh, upakalesas, the corruptions, is this perfect equipoise, perfect balance towards everything that's arising in the body and the mind. And things appear so subtle and so ephemeral and the body feels so light and insubstantial. It just feels like, kind of like the body's just evaporating, just wisping, just kind of particles of moisture just evaporating in the sun. That's how light the body feels when the mind is filled with equanimity. Again, because it is so unique and because it is so enjoyable in a non-dramatic way, attachment, craving, wrong views, pride, all attach themselves to it. And it is also thought to be the goal, that this is what I've been looking for, this is what the Buddha realized, and we think that we've got it, or we have attained or realized. Again, it's good, but it's not it. And so, again, the skillful teacher has to try to get you to just note these experiences like all the other notings that you have done, like today. Notings of the ordinary mundane, breathing in, breathing out, lifting, moving, placing, hindrances, defilements, sounds, thoughts. And when you can treat all of these experiences as no more important, significant, dramatic than breathing in, breathing out, then you're beginning to continue with your practice. Again, it's not, in and of themselves, these experiences are not an obstacle, but it's because of the attachment to them that they become a hindrance to practice. And the distinctive characteristic at this stage of practice is that we believe them to be a sign of our enlightenment. Sorry to disappoint you, but that's not it. <laughs> with continued encouragement and with growing understanding and remembering that 
in effect, these two are just another experience being known. We will clarify our understanding of what is the path and what is not the path. And this is a really significant place in practice. It is the most enjoyable practice we've seen at this point, and yet we get attached to it, and we lose sight of the path. Thinking, <coughs> indulging in these, or these themselves are it. And so we need to be reminded, and we need to eventually get back on the track of just noticing without indulging in any of them. They occur. They're natural. They, they arise due to causes and conditions because of the con continuity of the awareness and the development of insight. They'll arise. And when they do, hopefully you won't hang out there for more than a year uh, <laughs> and, and get back on track and, and finish, fin finish your work. But it takes some take some practice. When someone, it is said that when someone really reaches this stage of practice and matures the understanding of arising and passing away and really finally dis dis discerns, distinguishes and decides that just noting is the path, any kind of indulging is not the path, then it said there's nothing to stop you from, at that point, if you really get it, there's nothing to stop you from uh, reaching the goal. But this is a challenging transition point in practice because it's very difficult to let go of those kinds of experiences. But if you can, when you can, then there's nothing to stop you from reaching the goal. Now, as good as all that is, the next series of insight knowledges are not at all what you would expect. Remember the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. It's pain, it's unsatisfactoriness, it's vulnerability, it's instability, it's oppressiveness. That's what dukkha refers to. The first noble truth is to be investigated, meaning we really need to investigate deeply how the first noble truth appears in our life, how it arises, how it arises in each moment. And after this arising and passing away, we enter a period of practice where we really begin, well, I should say we, we probably finish the investigation of dukkha because the next four insights are called the dukkha jnanas, where we gain extensive knowledge of dukkha. You know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> but what is so challenging about it is that the seemingly good practice of arising and passing away disappears. And we enter a period of practice where it's just unbelievably unsatisfying. None of these dramatic effects are happening anymore. Objects aren't clear. You can't remember from one moment to the next what you're doing. It feels like you're back at day one and you want to roll up the mat and go home. This is the second place in the journey called the rolling up the mat phase because it is so unexpected. You, you will think 
you're going backwards. You'll think you've really stopped practice and you're doing something wrong. Again, if you don't have a teacher at this point who, who knows the path and can guide you to keep going, you will stop. And you'll try to go back and recreate the experiences of arising and passing away. And if you don't trust your teacher and you leave that tradition and you go to another tradition, you'll practice till you get to the same place and you'll get stuck in the same place. So you really want to trust your teacher at this point and follow their advice and keep, just keep noting. As bad as it gets, and it'll get bad. <laughs> you know, because you really are coming to know the full range and extent and depth of dukkha. I won't go into details, but bear with it. Just keep going, because it is uh, a necessary part of the of the journey to really refine your understanding of of what dukkha is. The reason that it is so difficult to keep going at this stage is that. Let me explain this. The pace of the mindfulness is faster than the processing of the cognitive mind. So, the mind that wants to make sense of ordinary reality, it wants to put things together into concepts and understand the relationship between concepts, doesn't have time to do its work. And so, you're noting is so fast that it interrupts that process. And so what you end up noting is nothing recognizable. You don't have any concept for it. You don't have any name for it. You don't, you, you, you're trying to be mindful, but it doesn't feel like you're mindful because the mind is not able to run its process of clearly seeing a known object, recognizing that you're knowing it, and seeing that it passes away. It, the mind doesn't have time to do that whole cognitive process. The mindfulness cuts it off. And so it's a very destabilizing, unexpected, uh, challenging time to just keep noting what you can. But if you do, you know, you actually will get through this stage. And things will get better, I should say. But this stage of practice is called, this is what in this tradition we call sunyata, emptiness. Because we see not only the emptiness or the not-self characteristic of objects, but we see the emptiness of the noting mind itself. Oh, now we know there's no one noting nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's very empty of anything substantial. So it's, it's, it's rather destabilizing. It's really difficult to understand. It's not what we expect at all in practice. But if we persist and do the best we can, we will actually, the pace of, of noting will even increase and you'll get through that. There's a few intervening knowledges, but where we arrive and what's happening at this point in, the, in this whole terrain of the path is that we're strengthening equanimity. We're growing in knowledge of dukkha while at the same time strengthening equanimity. And it is the strengthening of equanimity which is 
predominant task in our practice is just to keep going and watch any reactivity and get a handle on it. And so the, the, the practice and the momentum is just uh, slowly, I should say, gradually developing more equanimity. And the way you do that is to extend the practice periods to more hours per day, longer sittings, longer, or longer sittings, sometimes longer walkings, depending on the balance of factors, but just more continuity and gradually uh, equanimity strengthens. The next most noticeable um, knowledge or insight knowledge is number 11, the Vipassana knowledge of equanimity towards phenomena. When equanimity reaches a certain maturity, practice feels good again and it is very enjoyable. Not enjoyable in the joy sense of the word, but enjoyable in the equanimous sense of the word, where the mind is not reacting to anything. And nothing is experienced as very pleasant or painful, neither physically nor mentally. Everything is very, uh, I can't say neutral, but it is seen without any reactivity in the mind. So the mind is very, very rapid. Awareness is very rapid. The body is as insubstantial as it'll ever be, and the mind is as light and uh, unburdened as you'll ever see it. It is said that the, when the yogi reaches equanimity, the stage of equanimity, their mind is like the mind of a fully enlightened being, except it's not permanent. And so you can imagine that it's a pretty refined and a pretty unentangled, very un completely unentangled uh, state of mind or ongoing condition of mind. So it is really what we've been looking for because it, while, we, while joy is great and bliss is wonderful, equanimity is better in the sense of it's just less uh, impactful, it's less uh, contact, it's less to deal with in, in every sense of the word. So it takes a pretty refined mind to appreciate the experience of equanimity. There are six conditions that define this equanimity. The first is there is no more fear of anything and there's no more delight in anything. Nothing causes the mind to fall into fear and nothing causes the mind to take delight because of the strength of the equanimity, the non-reactivity of the mind. And that applies to both immediate meditative experiences but also how you view the future. Whatever you can imagine in the future, no fear, no delight. Now, no fear and no delight might sound kind of bland, but actually it's pretty nice, <laughs> pretty exquisite. 
Second quality of this equanimity is that whatever minor pain or whatever occasional moments of pleasure might arise, they're seen with equanimity and without indulging, giving rise to no defilements and no attachment. So whatever we look at in the past or in the present or in the future, imagining that it would be painful or pleasurable, we see it all with equanimity and it isn't a source of defilement or indulgence. The third condition of equanimity is that the recognition or the noting mind runs effortlessly in a very composed way without stops and starts in a very uh, smooth homogeneous way over whatever arises where there's bare attention that just goes steadily and you feel like you could just sit forever in fact time passes without being noticed and often one might sit down and seem like they've been sitting for five minutes, ten minutes, and a couple of hours has gone by. Because you just lose sense of time. It's nothing to pull you out or you know, to get pushed away from. And so it's a very enjoyable, but not in a joyful way, but in a equanimous way. Again, it lasts for a long time. When this kind of equanimity arises, it, it lasts for a long time. And again, this is where people sometimes sit for two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty-four hours, no problem. It happens. Whereas the body just is fine, just sitting. Stuff goes by, no reaction, uh, effortless energy, and it can last for a long time. This equanimity becomes subtler as it grows stronger, meaning that the body feels subtler and subtler, the mind feels subtler and subtler, and at times it seems like nothing is happening except there's awareness. There's just the knowing of nothing happening. A place to get caught, but it's quite a lot of balance of mind there. And finally, with this equanimity, you can't even generate wandering mind. You might try to go out and think about something to worry about or think about a problem you've got to solve or think about something you see and you can't. The mind will just come right back in here and just note it with uh, extreme balance. And so it's a pretty long for place. So again, this kind of um, Serenity and effortless energy and subtlety is unique in practice. What is happening here is the equanimity is maturing and our understanding of the three characteristics. Because in all that we see in equanimity, we still are seeing the three characteristics. It's impermanent, enduring, but impermanent, or recurring, I should say. It's dukkha, it has the dukkha characteristic, it's unstable, we see that. And it's not, not self, you know, we can't, it's not ours, we can't make it happen. So these three characteristics are being seen in every moment, even with equanimity. And it's at this point that the mind 
prepares to access the unconditioned. And when the mind is in a very non-reactive state, at some point the understanding of impermanence becomes so clear that the non-attachment to, or the non-craving, the not holding on to anything becomes so strong that you let go of everything. And when you let go of everything, then you may stumble upon the unconditioned. Or the mind may leap to the unconditioned because it's not hanging on to anything. Because of the knowledge that everything is impermanent. Everything is changing. Everything is just arising and passing away. And when that knowledge matures, we don't hang on to anything. And then we can access the unconditioned. Or the understanding of dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of phenomena becomes so clear, so ever-present, that again, the mind doesn't reach for anything that arises because it understands it has the dukkha characteristic. And when the mind doesn't reach for anything, it can land on the unconditioned. Or when one understands, or when the understanding of the anatta, selfless characteristic, arises, and you see how impersonal, how ephemeral, how evanescent everything is with no inner core, Again, the mind doesn't reach for and grab on to what really isn't there. And in letting go of everything, it again can land on the unconditioned. So these three insights are the doorway for accessing the unconditioned. I won't go into details, but just to say that accessing the unconditioned is the goal. That's where the mind takes Nibbana as its object and attains, in this tradition, what we'd call the first stage of enlightenment. And it has its dramatic effects of uprooting from the mind all doubt, all belief in a sense of self, and all beliefs in any kind of false path, rites, rituals, whatever it is that you might have believed was the way to freedom, liberation, enlightenment. Uh, you've abandoned that. And with the abandoning of these three fetters, or these three obstacles, then enlightenment is assured. No more doubt, no more belief in a sense of self, and no more belief in wrong practices. Your, 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 your life in samsara is soon to come to an end because of the final, you know, uh, continuing with practice will eventually uh, uproot the remaining defilements. It is this attainment, it is this recognition of the unconditioned that ensures your future lives won't be uh, too bad. <laughs> This is the journey that we're on. I've given you some outline of the map, but believe me, 
not the details. There's a lot more to discover, a lot more to see. And I hope it's enough to invite you to take the journey, not to discourage you from taking a journey. And let me just say, this path wasn't invented by the Buddha, but it was discovered by the Buddha. And he point, taught and pointed out this path to men and women from his time. And they too realized this path. And there have been those since the time of the Buddha who have heard, practiced, and realized the truth of this path. And it has come to us in this way. It's not just a good idea. It wasn't invented in California back in the 60s. <laughs> it is timeless. And there have been innumerable numbers of beings who have confirmed this path and have realized the goal. It is not only for people at the time of the Buddha. It is not only for monks and nuns in seclusion in the Himalayas for a lifetime. It is for and available to each one of you in this room. It takes dedication. It takes clarity of aspiration. It takes effort. And it can be realized. It is worth whatever you can invest in it. This truly is the peace. This is the highest, namely the end of all formations. The fading away of craving, detachment, extinction, the realization of Nibbana. And there is no higher happiness than this peace. So let's just sit for a moment and let that settle down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.